You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2020, brought to you by The Ark, Radio Ramadan 365, Al Khair, Human Relief Foundation, and Allison Street Cleaners. Allison Street Cleaners, is your laundry piling up? Are you too tired or busy to get it done? Come to Allison Street Cleaners, a fast and friendly laundrette. Services include dry cleaning, ironing, shirt service, and you can now also hire the rug doctor, making sure all your cleaning needs are fulfilled. Presenting you with an exclusive Ramadan special to Radio Ramadan listeners. £2 off every £10 spent until the 15th of June. Don't miss out. Visit us at 110 Allison Street, Glasgow, g 428 N or call 0141-423-3958 Alison Street Cleaners Clean water isn't a luxury It's the moral right of everyone Yet 785 million people live without it And the consequences are dramatic With diseases from dirty water Killing more people each year Than all forms of violence Including war It's why Human Relief Foundation bring clean water into the heart of communities. But they need your support to do more. Visit hrf.org.uk We believe that every child deserves a good education. This is the best way to ensure that they can achieve their full potential and escape a life of poverty for themselves and their families. All that these children want is a chance to learn and fulfill their dreams. With your donations, Al Khair Foundation helps thousands of children gain a quality education. Please support us so that we can continue to help some of the poorest children across the world. To learn more, please visit our Glasgow branch at 441A Victoria Road, Glasgow, G428RW or call on 0141-423-5747 or visit our website at alkhair.org. Hello and uh, assalamu alaikum. Uh, welcome back uh, to the Ikra Book Festival, uh, a unique project um, started by um, the Ark and Radio Ramadan 365 uh, here in Glasgow, but uh, broadcasting around the world. Um, uh, I believe we have quite a few uh, people who have um, registered for the event, over 250 of people have been, uh, registered for the event. So I hope you've been enjoying the session so far. If you um, have just joined us, you've, you've missed some, some wonderful sessions. Um, everything from um, soldiers to spies, and we continue in that um, in that war theme um, uh, with uh, Dr. Guy Bowman, um, talking about his books and the importance about the forgotten Muslim soldiers of Dunkirk. Um, I think uh, many of us will have, have seen uh, the the, the um, uh, a harrowing film actually about the, about Dunkirk, etc., and, and now know a little bit more about um, that, but won't know anything about. Uh, um, there was very little representation, I think, um, um, from um, ethnic minorities in that film. Um, uh, just before I do that, just to mention that today's been brought to you uh, with uh, the kind of sponsorship of Al Khair Foundation and of um, the Human Relief Foundation as well. So, um, thank you very much for sponsoring this event and making it possible. And if you've enjoyed it today, please head across to their websites and donate for their f- phenomenal charity work that they do all around the world uh, and uh, for uh, uh, to make the world a better place. And um, so far, um, that's what the sessions have been about. It's been about that positivity, about that um, uh, um, inclusiveness, um, about those individuals who inspire us to be better individuals, um, and to be better people, 
and to bring the world together, which is something we need more of in this day and age, rather than divisiveness we hear from many of our politicians. I'm going to introduce our next interview uh, interviewer. Um, we'll be inter interviewing uh, Dr. Dee Bowman. Um, Raisa Ahmed, and we could probably do um, interviews with with uh, um, the people who are doing interviews, the fascinating people in themselves. Uh, we'll maybe do that sometime maybe Ramadan. Um, uh, Raisa Ahmed um, is a Scottish Asian Muslim screenwriter and director. Uh, she's based in Glasgow. I've had um, uh, um, the good uh, fortune to see her. Um, she uh, works across television and film. Uh, her credits include CBBC shows uh, Feeling Better and Molly Mac uh, Control. Uh, a BBC social phone drama and Meet by the Water, a Scottish Film Talent Network commissioned short film, and the BBC's The Break and upcoming BBC Teen Monologues Spark. So she's uh, really um, busy, a busy woman. So thank you very much for taking time today, uh, Raisa. Uh, she's currently in development on a feature film project with Film 4, as well as developing a number of other projects across film and television. So very much embedded in the media and uh, a good role model for um, um, young, aspiring. Um, uh, uh, People who want to be involved in the media. Um, thank you very much for joining us this, uh, today, Raisa Salakum, and I'll hand over to you to interview uh, Dr. Ebon. Um, Salakum, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us um, to well, while we speak to Dr. Gieberman. Um, I'm quite excited about this because um, I think that uh, as a community, we've got a lot of stories that haven't been told, and what Dr. Gieberman's doing with his book is he's telling some of those stories. Um, so Dr. Bowman, um, um, shall we start with a, a little reading and, and then we can um, quiz you on where these stories came from and so on. Sure thing, absolutely, yes. Good morning, Marissa, nice to see you. So I'm gonna read you to you from the prologue to the book um, uh, and the prologue is called On the Beach. Uh, so it starts, Bray Dunes, Tuesday the 28th of May, 1940 the northernmost point of France, just a few miles from Belgium and 50 miles from the southeast corner of England. This pretty seaside resort with its restaurants, striped canopies and miles of golden sands has been transformed by an accident of history into a Dantean vision of hell. A vast plume of black smoke rises from the burning oil refinery in the harbour to the left. The smell is everywhere. In front, the sea is littered with wrecks and burning ships while small boats nip back and forth to the sands. On the beach, tired, despondent Tommies in their khaki battle dress and tin helmets line up patiently to board a boat that will take them to home, square meal, and a quiet bed. Overhead is the occasional Messerschmitt or Focke Wolf, or worst of all, a Stuka, with its deafening, frightful Jericho trumpet siren fitted deliberately to cause panic, diving down nearly vertically to drop its 250 kilogram bomb on the dunes. And behind, a very few miles behind, the might of the German army is closing in harassing the French and British rearguard, besieging the city of Lille, advancing in a seemingly endless victorious wave through Belgium and northern France. This is the Battle of Dunkirk, the third day of Operation Dynamo, the nine days wonder that will see 338,000 allied troops evacuated from under the noses of the Germans. 18,000 men will be evacuated on this day, 6,000 from the beaches to the east of the town and 12,000 from the harbour. The myth of Dunkirk has many elements, one of which I'll skip, I shall skip on a bit. Among the men evacuated from the beaches that night were 300 who looked very different from their boatmates. Dressed in khaki, yes. Dressed in khaki, yes, but a long shirt like kurta rather than a short battle dress blouse. 
Some wore the standard tin helmets on their head. Some wore forage caps and some wore a pudgy or turban. All had nut brown faces. Most had moustaches. All but four of them were Muslims. They carried no weapons for they had been issued with none when they left far off Punjab six months before. These were the men of the 25th Animal Transport Company of the Royal Indian Army Service Corps, who had traveled 7,000 miles with their mules to help the British Army. They were part of the so-called Force K-6, also known as the Indian Contingent. They marched along the beach on the afternoon of May the 28th, sepoys and drivers, nikes and daffodars, blacksmiths and carpenters and cooks, and one imam. One of them was Jemadar Nizamdin, who would stay with them all the way through until their return to India in February 1944, rising through the ranks until he obtained a commission as lieutenant. His image and his voice are preserved forever in a cine clip at the Imperial War Museum, filmed on the day he reached India again after more than four years away from home. Bellows' boy Mehtab Khan was there on the 28th of May, a man whose a man whose job was to blow air to superheat the fire that forged shoes for the mules. Beside his job, he had a talent for hockey that he would put into use playing against the youth club in Devon a year later. At their head was the magnificent figure of Major Mohammed Akbar Khan, at that time the senior most Indian in the Indian Army. A veteran of the First World War who joined the army as a humble sepoy, he towered over his soldiers, being six foot two inches tall and broad to boot. He had been one of the first Indians to be made an officer in 1919, and he would go on to be the senior officer in the new Pakistan army in 1947, eventually dying in 1986 in his house Lal Koti in Karachi, surrounded by his loving family. The four-year story of the, 20, of the men of the 25th Company and their comrades is one of the great untold stories of the war. Their friendships and the racism they encountered, their struggles to find the right kind of food, the mosques they attended and improvised, the women they loved and the babies they left behind were all part of a unique experience of soldiering. They included in their number the only units of the Indian Army ever sent to Britain. And therefore they mirrored the experience of hundreds of thousands of British soldiers who had traveled in the opposite direction. They spent time in some obscure corners of the British Isles. Kinloch Leven, Steepholm, Mevy Bridge, Nuntmore, and they formed some strong bonds they formed some strong bonds with farmers and children and women throughout. The men of 22nd Company, however, didn't make it to the UK until the very end of the war, having been captured in France in June 1940 and spending nearly five years in prisoner of war camps. They left behind 58 of their friends in cemeteries in Britain, France and Germany, men who were bombed by the Luftwaffe, suffered from accidents or died from tuberculosis. Their stories shall be told in this book. So that's a bit of the prologue of the book. Um, I got goosebumps while you were reading part of that. Um, when, when you started talking about them leaving home, um, I could just, I could feel goosebumps. Uh, and it, it's that thing of, um, these are almost ghosts in our past that have not had a chance to tell their stories yet. And yeah. I guess the, the first question is about starting at the start. What inspired you to start looking into this kind of specific part of history I mean there's so much that's untold what what drew you to this mm, let me I've got so, let me show you a slide um so uh there it is um can you see the slides yes great uh so I'm going to show you this slide here so this comes from a book um about eight years ago I was doing a project I live in Exeter in, in Devon a long way from you folk up in Glasgow 
Um, and um, I was doing a project about the multicultural history of the city of Exeter. And I was looking at a book about the Second World War in Devon. And I came across these three photos, um, which says that these were guys in, in Modbury, which is um, a village on the south coast of Devon in 1940. And I was just fascinated by this. And I, I looked at these photos with the mules and with the turbans and going along the country lanes. And it looks like they're on the beach. Um, and I thought, what is this story? How, you know, where did this come from? I, I thought I knew about the Second World War, but I'd never heard of this, Indian soldiers being here in, in Britain, in Devon even. And so um, I went to the National Archives um, and uh, as Shrami Basu was saying and finding some of the wonderful records they had there. And I found the war diary of the 25th company that I was just telling you about, just reading to you about. Um, and it was just such a fascinating story. Um, and it, I just uh, it progressed from there after I finished that job. Um, I went on to do a master's at Exeter University and then a PhD at Exeter University. And that led to the book. So it just it, for me, it's just it was just a fascination of a, of, a, of a great story, but a story that was, as you say, a story that was untold. Ghosts. As you say. Yeah. And, and how do you how, how did you then go about doing that research? I mean, you've spoken a little bit about finding that that diary and um, finding the pictures. But I guess when you're looking that much that far in the past, um, our, our, our primary resources are often gone. Um, so, so how did you go about doing that? Were you traveling to India and Pakistan? Were you speaking to families? Where, was there, were there any issues in terms of um, the language barriers and all of that? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, is, it, was, it was a detective job, you know? Um, uh, I mean, starting in the National Archive and going to the main archives in the UK, but also going to some quite obscure parts of, of Scotland, particularly, but also Wales and England, um, and going to little museums and talking to people who remembered them. And there are still quite a few people around who remember them. Um, I went to France, I went to Germany, looked in archives there, looked in, in, in cemeteries. And I, I visited all but one of the 58 graves that are left behind in Europe. And I went to India and I went to Pakistan, which was fantastic um, for finding documents, but also particularly in, in Pakistan, I went to some very small villages in Punjab and I, I met family members. Um, I mean, I was looking, I was hoping that I might still find one of them still alive, but that, I didn't do that, I wasn't successful in that. But I met lots of daughters and nephews and great, great nephews. And, um, and some of them, a lot of them had very, very, um, didn't have much to say. They didn't have you know, much that they remembered about their relatives. Um, in many cases, they, they didn't actually know them. In some cases, they had some, some artifacts and things that they could show me. So, for example, um, those who'd been in prison, prisoner of war camps, one of them had a, a wonderful Quran stand that their, her father had made while he was in the camp, or they had money from, from Germany. Um, and the best interview was a, a, a lovely lady who was um, in, in a, I can't remember the name of the village, um, who, who, who had a book of poems that her father had written. Um, in Punjabi, which was just fantastic, which was about his time in Britain and also his time in, in Burma as well afterwards, later in the war. So, so there was, um, it's like a, a kind of a, a scattering of, of pieces of evidence around the world. Um, and I had to try and, yeah, trace them, track them down a bit like a detective. 
And did you find that any bits of evidence were conflicting with each other? Because, you know, our, our, um, our histories can be often told through one lens. Um, Absolutely. And, did you, and, and were there any instances where you were just, you were just quite not sure what, what the truth was? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question, Raisa. Thank you for that. I mean, uh, yes, and absolutely the bit that I was reading just now. So Major Mohammed Akbar Khan, he, he wrote a memoir um, which covered that period. Um, and he also told stories to his family about that period. Um, and then there is the official uh, war diary, which was um, written by one of the white officers in his unit, the, the commanding officer in his unit. And they don't they don't add up. They don't they don't quite match in terms of, you know, detail of dates, as well, but also who was actually in charge of that company. When you read Major Mohammed Akbar Khan's um, account, he was in charge of the company. But when you read the uh, Major um, uh, Wainwright, his name was, uh, he was the commanding officer. And that's what all the kind of official documents tell you. And there was a story um, that he, Major Mohammed Akbar Khan, had told his nephews, nephew and nieces, um, uh, a wonderful story about Dunkirk, which was not true. I mean, completely untrue. There's nothing that validates it. So, so I mean, you, you have to be um, you have to be really quite careful in terms of triangulating, I suppose, triangulating evidence and um, sifting, um, and then presenting what presenting only that which is you know which is verified and verifiable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's some task, isn't it? It's um, gathering all of that, putting it all together. And, and your book, what you've done is you focused in specifically on individuals mm. um, as a way to tell those stories. I mean, how did you how did you decide who who were those men that you were going to focus in on? Um, and were there any stories that that you just you know you came across and you just knew straight away that this had to be part of the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think for me, I'm a social and cultural historian, so I like people it's all about people and it's all about individuals so I mean I one of the things that I did in the preparation and the research was to gather all the names that I could so there were 400 and 4,100 and something men in force K6 I found the names of 2,200 of them so more than half wow. um, and I've got all of those on a database and every time I found another piece of evidence I'd put that into the database and that so it would build up and up and in most cases, there's much more stuff from and about the officers, so the British officers and the Indian officers. So, I mean, Major Mohammed Akbar Khan, for example, you know, I've got, I could write a book about him. Um, and the other um, Indian officer at the beginning of the war, Captain Ahmed Ahmed Khan, I could write a book about him. And I met his daughter and had a great interview with her. Um, I think, can I tell you a little story? Yes, about, so so I'm going to just zoom through some of these slides and show you this slide here. This is Jeff Shapland, okay, who's a gentleman in his 70s who lives in, in Leicester, uh, near Leicester in, in England. And um, his mother is Gladys, and his mm -hmm. father, who is his father? Well, this was this is this is one of the great mysteries that of of, of him and of, of the book. Um, so he, he was born in St. Austell in Cornwall in 1942. Um, and the photo on the left shows um, some men of the Indian contingent marching through the streets of St. Austell in 1940. And he was born um, a few months after that, about, about a year after that. And he grew up, um, he's on the right in the photo here with his brother, Ron. He grew up thinking that his mother was Gladys, who we saw in the first photo, and that his father was a, a white 
English electrician by the name of Shapland, who, who was uh, in Plymouth for most of the war, who, who, who was married to his mother. Um, and maybe in that photo you can tell, maybe you can't, but, but his, that wasn't who his father was. His father was one of the guys in the photo on the left. Um, probably through some detective work that he did, um, his father was a guy called Jamal Khan, um, who was a driver, um, so the lowest rank uh, in, in the 25th company again. Um, and Jeff, or as he's now known, Paratosh, he spent many, many years with this idea that his father was a white guy. And it was only as his life progressed, um, going away from Cornwall, studying in Yorkshire, working in Bristol and then in Leicestershire, people would say things to him like, uh, he was a teacher for many, many years, and, and, and the, the school kids would come up to him and say, Asian school kids in Leicestershire would come up to him and say, Mr. Shapland, Mr. Shapland, are you Asian too? And he'd say, no, no, not at all. You know, and he, and he, he experienced racism, um, and even though he thought he would not be the subject of racism, um, and eventually he put together clues um, and he, he, he found that actually it was, it was a bit of an open secret in, in some, among some members of his family. Um, and I, and, and, you know, and I tell the story in, in more detail in the book. Um, what's interesting about that story is the shame that his mother felt, the shame that she felt in that she never told him who his father was. Um, and indeed his brother, Ron, in the same photo, never told him, never told them who their father was. Um, and yet he is completely um, comfortable with that. He is comfortable with, with his identity, with his, with, you know, that his father is this unknown person um, who, who loved his mother and who, with whom uh, had two children with his mother, but, and who went to India and then almost certainly to Pakistan after partition in 1947. Um, and and never and never saw him again, but but he's he's comfortable with that, and I think I find that very inspiring, really, as a story for him. I mean, that's I mean, how many of those stories must there be? You know, that's there must be endless. There must be people out there that don't realise that that's their heritage as well. Exactly. I mean, there's at least eight that I know of um, children, K six babies, I call them, who were in in <laughs> Scotland. Uh, sorry, not in Scotland, in, in in Wales and in Cornwall. There are. All, I bet you there are some in Scotland I haven't come across. Yeah. I mean, that one of the questions we have from um, from those listening in is, um, have you found any surviving relatives of forced forced K six relating to the soldiers buried in uh, Kingusie in Scotland? Yes. Yes, I interviewed two. Um, Two guys in Pakistan who were related to two of the two of the Kingusi uh, burials, absolutely, yeah, um, and um, and that was very uh, that was quite powerful actually because when I when I met them I was able to show them the photos of the graves. So I'll just there yeah, you are. That's a photo of, of the Kingusi cemetery. So this is a place in um, for those of you who don't know, it's in the north of Scotland, uh, in the Highlands. You can see the mountains behind. This photo shows a ceremony that was organized by Colourful Heritage that I went to a couple of years ago. Um, uh, the, the two men in the middle of the photo are chaplains. One of them is the Muslim Imam for the British Armed Forces. The other one is a um, Church of Scotland chaplain. Um, and there are nine uh, men from Force K6 who are buried there. Um, and I was able to show the relatives 
back in Pakistan, I was able to show them the photos of the graves and they'd never seen the photos. They'd never seen the graves before. They didn't know where they were buried. They had no idea of where King Usi was and even probably where Scotland was. And they were really quite moved by that. And they were quite, um, they were in some cases in tears and really pleased to see that these grave, these stones are looked after and cared for. Um, and the story behind the care is, is, is also a great story. So in the photo on the right, there's a lady called Isabel Harling and she um, is in her 90s. And since 1948, if I remember rightly, she has been looking after those stones. She has been going regularly and cleaning and tidying and putting, and putting flowers on um, as, a member of the British, as a member of the British Legion, a member of the local uh, part of the British Legion. And this year she was honored uh, by getting a, a, being awarded the British Empire Medal for her service. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a, a fantastic testimony and a fantastic way of linking between, you know, between South Asia and, and, and Scotland. And, and so does she remember the men? Um, and are there people within that area that still remember the men that are buried there? She doesn't personally remember them. Um, um, there are certainly people up in the north of Scotland who remember them. Yeah, I, I met quite a few who did further north than that in, 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 um, in Lairg. And in other in other villages in the, in the north of Scotland, yeah, there are still people who remember them, and, and some great stories to, to, to know. Any you can share? Uh, any mm. any funny ones? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would I I'm, I would just say say Jakob Mirza um, was one of the soldiers, and he he um, was posted to uh, the village of Nokdu, which is up sort of up at the top end of its uh, space side. Um, and his, his unit was actually posted uh, in the distillery. They were um, put in the distillery where the whiskey is made because um, all the whiskey distilleries were shut down for the duration of the war. Um, and while he was there, um, he was, uh, I mean, there's a, I haven't got the photo on the slideshow actually, unfortunately, but he was a very handsome young man. Um, and he went to a, um, a dance in a, uh, in a local village um, and he saw um, a young woman there um, and uh, basically he fell in love with her. And, um, uh, and they, 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 you know, they, they, had a, they had a friendship and that friendship was continued after, uh, afterwards when he, many years later, he came back to Britain and he settled in Nottingham and he died there not very many years ago. Um, and he was reunited with this girl that he'd met while he was in Scotland. And even though both of them were both of them were now married with children, they were reunited as adults, and it's a and it's a it's a great story. It's a lovely story. I haven't really got the time to go into detail. Yeah, I mean that that's amazing, and and it kind of um, speaks to how far-reaching some of these roots are, and how integrated um, and I guess intertwined is the better word. Um, all these communities are in a way that in modern Britain we can often not realise that mm. we've all been part of very similar experiences for a very long time. I mean, one of the questions, uh, we've got a couple of really good questions here actually. Um, so the first one is, what implications does your research have on modern contemporary issues? So for example, um, with our kind of our young people and that, their identity and, and what they're facing, especially, I guess, with a lot of the movements that are happening now uh, um, around calling out racism, the Black Lives Matter movement, all of that. And there's, there's more of a, a challenging of um, versions of, of history that we've been told. How, how does your research kind of um, 
help that or how does it impact that? Mm, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I mean, I, I think um, I think you know history needs to be retold and re-examined and and rediscovered. Um, and the history of the Second World War is is as much needs that as much as any other part of the of history because the Second World War is still very alive in people's memories in the in the UK. Certainly for for white British people, it is. Um, you know, and what I'm what I'm saying is that, and, and I think what cultural heritage is saying is, is that it needs to be alive for people of South Asian heritage, South Asian heritage as well. But I think it's also, I think it's. You know, I mean, I could talk about Islamophobia and I could talk about the kind of the I mean, the, the sort of racism that exists in Britain and it has existed. But in a way, I'd kind of rather I'd rather flip it around and talk about the these guys, these soldiers and the um, the people they met and the people that they fell in love with and the people they worked alongside and the relationships they made. Um, I'm just wondering if there's a good photo. Here. That's a nice photo. This is actually from France rather than from, from Britain. Um, but I, I think I'd rather talk about them as being, um, being an example of how you can get along and how you can work together. In this case, they're watching a, um, a gymkhana in northern France and um, they're watching guys doing trick riding and there's, they're watching music and dancing. Um, and it's, you know, and, and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great photo. I love this photo so much from the Imperial War Museum. So, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's about people um, getting on with it and being part of something better and getting past those differences of language, ethnicity, religion, nation, um, and seeing, you know, that, they are to, that, we're, that, that we are together just like they are together. I mean, in those days, there was a common enemy. And that makes it easier, I think. And they were they were fighting against fascism, as, as Shravani Basil was saying before with Nur and Ayat Khan. Um, I would say we have a common enemy, which is which is about division. What we're trying to do, and I think what what my, I aim to do is to help to build a multicultural society where all strands of our history are recognised and and brought together and celebrated and remembered. Um, and where we can get over those divisions, which, you know, which I think the divisions are put there by people who want to divide us, but we don't have to be divided. You know, we, we, sh we, we shouldn't be divided. We can be part of something bigger and better. You know, I mean, I think just an example right now is that Marcus Rashford is, is empowering and encouraging and inspiring people around the country to get together and work as a community, you know, and to offer food for, um, children who may be hungry over the half-term period. Um, and that, you know, that's that's what it's about. It's about people coming together and working together. And I think that's, for me, that's what their story, one of the things that their story is about. I mean, and, and I think that that's absolutely um, what this history should be doing. It should be inspiring people to see the way in which actually we have been together in the past. I mean, have you had anyone from, um, I guess you would call it the far right, who might find some of what you're presenting quite challenging or, or, or might actually just not want to believe it. Have you, have you ever had any backlash like that or? No, That's great. right, so I haven't. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, I think there's something, I mean, I think that Shrabani had a question like that as well, which, and I, but I think there's something about the, 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 the fact of um, this being part of the war effort that kind of takes the rug from under the feet of those who who might kind of push that line, um, 
you know, I, I mean, there is a, there's another story in the book about um, Bernard Manning, who is a, um, a, a, a racist comedian in, in the north of England, um, who, you know, who, who kind of, who, who said some racist things. But I think, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on those two guys too much. You know, they, they, they kind of, I think they disappear into the background. I truly believe we're creating a better society in Britain at the moment. You know, um, you can get bogged down in, in culture wars on Twitter, um, but you can also see that there's a lot of good stuff that's happening at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that, I, I, I'm really pleased to hear that, that you're not, you're not getting that backlash that we would think that you might get because of what you're, you're presenting, essentially a new version of a history that people think they understand in one way. Um, so, I mean, we, we've got this book, the book is out. Um, and do you say, see yourself doing something more with all the research that you've done? Is there, is there another book that goes alongside this? Or are there other areas that um, you've kind of uncovered during your research that you're just like, right now, I want to get my teeth into this? Yeah. Um, I, well, I, there's a website, forcek6.org.uk, um, which, which includes, among other things, it includes the database of all the names that I've found. So I'd encourage people to have a look at that. Um, I feel like, I don't know, it feels like this project hasn't finished. Um, so, I mean, I am doing other things. I'm doing bits and pieces of writing and, and research and education materials and so on. But it just feels as if there are, there's more to come out. I mean, I had a, um, a letter um, a few weeks ago from a woman in, in Wales saying that she remembered them, that she'd read the book that she was really, you know, really pleased about it. And she sent me some photos, which I hadn't seen before, and some, a letter that had come back, two letters that had come back from, from India to her, um, to her parents or her grandparents, I can't remember. Um, and so there's, I'm, you know, there's still evidence out there. There's still things out there. So I, I don't, I, I, in, yeah, I kind of, I will move on um, <laughs> and I will have to move on, um, but, uh, I, I think it's still it's still a live um, subject for me. So you know, I'm, I'm hoping that there may be a film someday. Um, I'm hoping that there will be a, a South Asian edition. I think it's quite possible of the book. Um, it feels like it's still a live project. Right? I mean, one of some of the comments that we've had. Um, do you see this becoming a movie adaptation? Um, and then I could see a great TV drama about Scottish Highlanders of that time dealing with curry and chapatis. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, there's clearly an appetite there for, one, for this. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's one story from Aberdeen about um, which was on the BBC website about a guy who 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 tasted curry and ch and, and chapatis, literally chapatis and curry, and who said that he 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 you know he it influenced his taste buds for the positive for the rest of his life. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely there. I think the potential of a film is great. There's a lot of visual. There's a lot of interesting visual stuff in here. Um, I mean, there's, I won't show you that, but uh, what else? I quite like this, actually. This is a, this is a, a, um, a poster that was produced, Waterloo Station, 1943. Helen McKee was a famous artist, reasonably famous illustrator. So this is in the middle of the war, Waterloo Station, one of the principal railway stations uh, in the capital. Um, and you can actually go and you can get exactly that view. You know, you can go upstairs where the shops are and you can still see that same view. And here's the hustle and bustle and here's a pair of nuns and here's an American soldier and a policeman and some naval guys. And what do we have right there in the middle? Here's a close-up. Here are these two guys from Force K6 with their puggies and their rifles. 
And the reason that they are there in the photo is because they were there on Waterloo Station. I mean, they used to go to the um, the mosque at Woking, the first purpose-built mosque in the UK. They used to go to that mosque very often. And Woking is just 20 miles down the um, down the railway line from from Waterloo. So there they are. And she put them in that in that um, in that poster. And that picture um, is uh, a very popular. Um, as a jigsaw puzzle. So if you go oh, to the, um, yeah, if you go to the National, uh, what's it called, the British um, London Transport Museum in Covent Garden, there is a, uh, a jigsaw puzzle that you can buy there. And these two guys are right there in the middle of it. And lots of people buy the puzzle. And I just, I find that really fascinating that they are there in that middle of that poster and in the middle of that jigsaw puzzle and have been there since 1943 at the heart of you know the, this great railway station with the steam trains all around them. And yet they're kind of not noticed. They're kind of hiding in plain sight. You know, they're just part of this enormous hustle and bustle um, uh, and, and the life of wartime Britain, um, two out of you know, probably hundreds of figures. And I, th I find that it, it's a great metaphor really for them um, being hidden in plain sight. And also, I love the idea of the jigsaw in a way that kind of reflects my research process, finding <laughs> pieces of jigsaw, you know, in, in London, in Scotland, in France and Germany and in Pakistan and bringing them all together and assembling the jigsaw piece by piece. I mean, it does feel like it, it is that simple, isn't it? it? It's, you know, she's clearly put thought into ensuring that they're included. Um, so she very much sees them as a part of this time. And, and with some of these kind of, um, I guess, films and so on that we have, sometimes the inclusion of those stories is that simple. It's just ensuring that they are included in yeah. that way. And yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't, you don't need to make a big thing of it. It's just, you know, that's the truth. They were there. Absolutely. They were there. There wasn't very many of them, but they were there and, and they were, you know, they were well, they were photographed. They were, and there's some film footage, you know, I could show you. There's um, lots of, you know, there's an, ad, an advert for Sunlight Soap, which featured, you know, an Indian soldier, which was based on them, you know, many, many ways that they were kind of visible in, in, in society at that time until they left in, in 44. Hey. Um, thank you so much and, and Raisa I'm gonna to have to try and wrap it up here if you want to just um last words from you said Raisa no I just want to say thank you so much for all of that. that was absolutely fascinating um there's I, I feel like we could go on for two hours talking about this um so everyone please do check out the book um we will share the links um and and go discover some hidden histories thank you thanks Raisa Great. Thank you much, Guy. And um, I don't know if you want to just say one last one last message, uh, Guy, um, to 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 the young people out there actually about how important um, uh, uh, these messages are of the past. Because of, you know, um, my generation, of course, we kind of uh, uh, you know talked about and, and previous generations knew about um, uh, the world wars, etc. And as each generation goes by, I think it starts to become more and more diluted. Um, mm. You know what is so important about our past um, that will shape our, the future of, of, of young people. Well, I would say that I mean history evolves, and our understanding of history evolves. And I think what we need to do with the Second World War is to is for young people and for all of us to understand that it's it was much bigger and more complicated and more diverse mm. than we are usually what we are usually fed. It wasn't just you know. Um, American soldiers and British soldiers and German soldiers 
um, that every country in the world was involved in some way. And most countries, you know, most countries were actually on one side or another fighting. And, you know, and, and, and that kind of breadth is largely unknown. So if you are, a, you know, a young Britain, a young child in a Scottish school and your, your heritage is from Brazil or your heritage is from Africa or your heritage is from Eastern Europe, then there is a link for you there. There is something, there's a connection between, mm. between your country of origin um, and this country in terms of the Second World War. So kind of, you know, find that if you can. Um, there is stuff available and I will, you know, and, and yes, just to understand the breadth of that, uh, of that involvement and of that contribution to the war. We've posted up some links so far about some of the stuff. I managed, I managed to find a link to the uh, the jigsaw puzzle as well. So sort of. <laughs> uh, you can pick up the stuff. The transport museum is absolutely wonderful, and I absolutely love that image um, of the uh, of, of of the Indian soldier sitting cross-legged with you know um, children, local children sitting on their laps. It's absolutely phenomenal. I think we have to do uh, probably some sort of. It'd be great to do some um, exhibition of those of that kind going around uh, the country. Would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Guy, for that and for your passion and for what you've what you've done and and the books, etc. Uh, we hope that it does go from strength to strength, and we perhaps see some other um, form of that in some media and other otherwise. Um, but thank you for bringing that into our lives, um, and I hope more and more people um, begin to learn lessons from, from these uh, modest uh, soldiers uh, in, in space flight. Um, we have to move on. Thank you, Rajit. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye.